Shabbos, everybody. He says to them, This morning's reading, When you go out to war, this entire parsha, as I mentioned last night, 72 mitzvot, the most mitzvot, the most legal of all parshiot in the entire Torah, always accompanies us as we make our, our entry, as the landing gear has already come down for the high holidays, and we're making our approach. He says to the Milchama, all the Rebbes say, on the Kabbalistic level, the world is a world that is always confronting us. There is a Milchama, there is a, a war, not unlike the war in the Bhagavad Gita, not unlike the war in the Sufi scriptures where the Sufis make jihad from a literal war against infidels to the inner jihad, the inner place of confrontation, of conflict. Of course, the Kabbalah and Hasidut are less interested in the very interesting, right? not uninteresting, but they're less interested in the very interesting laws of Eishe Sifas Torah, with the actual literal halakha of, of engagement in war and all of the things, right, all of those things that are inevitable to some degree, or were inevitable at the time of the writing of the Torah, the, the current uh, way of being in warfare. The Torah had a much, uh, a much more lofty ideal of what it would be like to be at war. Even if you were at war, the Torah says, even if you were at war, and all of the testosterone and all of that is raging, one must, kadosh, that we have to have a machane that's kadosh. We have to have a, a sacred camp, what is known now in, in parlance in Israel as nikiyut hat, the neshek tahor. Neshek tahor, that the gun is pure. Right? Neshek tahor. You can't have a, a worse conflation of, of two words in Hebrew. Neshek, which is gun, and tahor, and purity. There could be nothing more impure in the world than a gun. It's the most impure thing in the world. To touch a gun is to be engaged in impurity by definition. There's nothing constructive about a gun. But says, says uh, the Torah, there are circumstances, there are inevitabilities, there are exigencies, there are things, there are realities. There is the ideal and the real. And the Torah could never, the Torah, this Torah of ours, this Torah here can never, ever, ever be too, create too much of a distance between the ideal and the real. You, you get it? It can't say, there won't be any war. It couldn't say that. So it said, there's going to be war. But make sure that when you're at war, that you don't forget. Remember your humanity. Right? Remember your humanity. And remember the humanity of the other. There's a woman, you see a woman, and you have desire. The word doesn't appear actually frequently in the Torah. You have this, you have a lust. It's very, it's very visceral. That's what you're doing. You're, in, you're engaged in, in the body. That's what a war is. So the Kabbalists are not that interested in that because uh, by the time Kabbalah arose in the 12th century in Provence, there wasn't that much warfare. There wasn't a Jewish army, right? But nonetheless, as we said, I said two minutes ago, there was still a war. And there were still... Uh, there were still the... The Torah's 
invitation that when you see something that you desire, right? All the rabbis say that the, the war that a Jew is involved in, a war that human beings are involved in, in the world is to redeem the shavisa shivya, all of those things that are held hostage. The, the nitsosos kedoshos, the, the holy sparks in the universe, and that each and every one of us, we go to war to, to redeem those hostages, right? That's our work. We're nutcrackers for God, right? We have to go out and find places where there are, are things that are, divine, there are values, there, are, there are, are possibilities that are awaiting our consciousness, our, our um, expertise, our skill to open them. Rabbi Ellen Liu, in, uh, in his book on the High Holidays, which should be mandatory reading for everybody who, who comes into the High Holidays, right, there's the very... Uh, there are very few writers that I recommend from the pulpit, even though I should recommend more. But I think Alan Liu is someone who has been on my lips from the time that I started uh, Romamu. He, uh, I had a very personal relationship with him. He knew me when I was a waiter, and I came because somebody had given me his book, one, his memoir, One God Clapping. Rabbi Alan Liu was a Zen priest before he came to JTS to become a conservative rabbi. And he went on to become a very well-respected conservative rabbi on the West Coast, who started the first ever meditation center that was a part of a synagogue out in San Francisco. And uh, he and his friend Norman Fisher, who was a very famous Buddhist monk, um, they created this Jewish meditation center in, in, uh, as a part of the synagogue that Alan was the rabbi of. And, Rab- and Alan, uh, who passed away some years ago, Alan was an incredible writer. And uh, he had written a book, on a memoir called One God Clapping. And uh, a friend of mine gave me the book, and I was a waiter here on the Upper West Side, and uh, they knew, people knew my story. So I went to see Alan at, at Makor. People remember Makor? That was where Romo had his first services, where it was at Makor on 67th Street. And I came in, and I was, you know, the Gemara tells a story about Rabbi Akiva, that Rabbi Akiva, w- when he became a rabbi, he laughed at how much he hated rabbis when he wasn't one. Because when he wasn't a rabbi, he said, I, if you would have given me a rabbi, I would have bitten him with the, bone, with the jawbone of an ass. That's, that's, he had such enmity for, for, for the rabbinate. And I had a similar enmity, but I was intrigued by his purported, you know, I couldn't believe that he had gone from Zen to Judaism because I had gone from Judaism to Zen, you know. So I thought, who is this guy? You know, he's going to, you know, I don't trust him. So I came to, to hear him speak, and I, against, my, my, uh, against my intentions, against my better wishes, he, he just won me over, you know, and I hated that. And I was sitting there, and I kept trying to say things to him that would trip him up, and he was very deft, you know. He just kind of didn't, <laughs> he kept deflecting everything I said. And then he wrote, I, I saw, so I had the book with me, and he, and he wrote in it, he said uh, he, to David, see, he wrote to, to Rabbi David, see you later. And, and uh and some years later, I was the rabbi in residence. About a good, a good, a good seven years later, I was the rabbi in residence at Elat Chaim, and Alan came. And uh, it was very emotional to go over and talk to him. So he has a beautiful teaching. <clears throat> and he said to me, he said, I, see, I told you I'd see you later. <clears throat> uh, he has a beautiful teaching on Kitetse. He says... If you look at the actual story here, what happens is a soldier who has a desire for a woman. The Torah says, take that, take that woman and bring her into your home. 
And for 30 days, 30 days, Yerach Yamim, you can wait. You're required to wait for 30 days. If you read, if you want to see it inside, it's on page 11, 12. So, when you take the field against your enemy and God delivers them into your power and you take some of them captive. And you see in the, amongst the captives, a beautiful woman, and you desire her. Then you will take her to be your wife. Very progressive for the time. Can you imagine? You have a desire? There's okay, you have a desire. Great. You can't rape her. You can't have your way with her. Take her to be your wife. Bring her into your home and shave her head. And, and pare her nails. Cut her nails. Amazing, right? So a little bit of a uh, difference of opinion on what, what exactly is happening here. Shave her head. Um, is that to make her look more beautiful or less beautiful? Right? Cut her nails. Is that to make her look more beautiful or less beautiful? In other words, is Torah saying make her beautiful or saying make her ugly? Right? Doesn't matter. Let her stay in your house for 30 days. Yerach yamim. And cry for her father and her mother. Presumably she'll never see her parents ever again. A poignant moment. And then, So Rabbi Lu said, this, the Torah is giving us good advice on all of our desires during the month of Elul. He said, if we let desires and wants, you see the way he makes the Hasidic turn? He's not interested in war. He's still interested in, in the inner place. He says, if you have a desire, wait on it. Give it time. That during Elul, the month preceding Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we read this every year, to remind ourselves that this is the time for looking at those things that during the heat of life, we want, we desire, we have a cheshek. And Torah says, wait on it. Wait on God, wait on what's true, wait on what's real, right? Desire is powerful, says Rabbi Lil. But wait. Is it possible, as Scott Peck said in the book, The Road Less Traveled, the first chapter of The Road Less Traveled is a vital, vital chapter. Another book I'm recommending. One second, be The lion is in the house, everybody. There's a lion here. What are you? Super, Superman is here. Superman is here and his brother. We live in a culture of instant gratification. We live in a culture that at any given moment, a desire can arise and we can have that wish, that desire fulfilled. And what that does to us, Rabbi Lou says, is it creates substitute gratifications. We never finally find out what it is that we want 
if we constantly fulfill our immediate desires, we can't ever get to a place of deep desire because we don't recognize that deep desires are worth waiting for. Deep desires are the kinds of things that you can't just buy on Amazon and have it show up tomorrow or immediately on your Kindle. It used to be there was a time, and I'm not, I'm not being uh, uh, regressive in this way, that you had to wait until a book, you know. You had to buy the book. You wanted to wait until the store was open. Now you don't. I'm not, I'm not lamenting that. But I am lamenting is that what was always present in human, in human conditions is now made that much easier. It's so easy now to think that we can have what we want in so many ways. And Rabbi Lewis is saying, the real desires, one second, boo-boo, I'm about to make a point here. It's an important point. Is, wait 30 days. So I just wanted to open up this reading this morning with that meditation from, from Alan. Because every year it, it strikes a chord in me. Every year when I read it again and again, I think he really got to the deep place in this, in this reading. Is that Kovei Adonai, that, you know, we begin in, the, in Elul, we start reading Psalm 27. <clears throat> and Psalm 27 is those who wait on God, right? Waiting on God. Waiting on God. It's waiting on yourself to answer the question, what is it that I really want? What is it that really I have a desire for? And so that will bring us to this morning's Rishon, to reading for the first Aliyah. I wanted to call forward for this Aliyah. The reading is on page 1130, verse 12. The reality in the Near East was that when you loaned somebody, when you, when you were a creditor, you often took things from people as collateral. It is called an avot, with an ayin and with a tet. That is the pledge that has been given to you. The Torah says that you can get, often people would give their garments as a, a very expensive garment would be given as a, as a, as a collateral as, as for the creditor. What if the person is so poor, right, that the only thing he had was the garment on his back and he gave it to you? And he gave it to you. The Torah says, if the person is so poor, make sure that you, you don't act accordingly as you usually do. Give back what you have taken as collateral. So that he can sleep with that, the only thing of value that he owns. And God will bless you because you have done tzedakah, you have done what is righteous, what is correct. Beautiful, right? How powerful is that? So the Torah is inviting us um, in this, I think, as a meditation. Ah, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I think we're beginning the reading at, at verse 14. Okay, so I did a whole covenant based on 12, 13, 14. Give me a second here. One second. 
Okay. So here in, in verse 14, 15, and 16, I love this because I, I've been guilty of this in the past. Um, if somebody does something for you, you have to pay him on the day that he's done it for you, right? And don't let a couple, you know, the person needs the money. He needs the money, right? He's giving, <clears throat> he's needy and urgently depends on it. He depends on you. And he'll cry to God and, he, and God will hear. Because the, 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 the Gemara goes on to say, God loves the poor. God hears the poor. So I always, I always think about this in terms of um, like an opposite of, of delayed gratification, right? It's the opposite of what we were talking about before. Right? Don't delay paying and don't delay letting people know when they've given you a gift or when they've done something for you. Right? Don't hold back. Don't be miserly with what you owe to people. Don't be miserly. Don't say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll thank them in a week. Or, right, or any of those places. That's where I go when I read this. So I want, that's a good aliyah too. So as we're preparing for Rosh Hashanah Kippur, this aliyah is a blessing to, to pay those who have given you, who have worked on your behalf, who have shown you kindness, to not hold back. Don't wait till Rosh Hashanah. Don't wait till Yom Kippur. Do it this week. This week, reach out to somebody and give them their just due. Pay them with, a, with something, right? With something that you owe, you owe them. For the first Aliyah, that's my kavanah for walking into Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, please come forward for Rishon.